This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. And I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Zanakis and my husband, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Today we have an interesting show planned for our listeners. We're titling it, The Camera Never Lies. It's about photography and art, and the use of photographs in the development of paintings and drawings. Using a photo as part of the process is particularly important in contemporary art. When I was in school, using a photograph to help you in creating a representational illusion was highly frowned upon. If you were attempting to do realist art, it was almost kind of taboo to use a photograph. It was considered cheating. Sheila, do you remember this, or or was it the experience different for you? Oh, no, sure. Copying a photograph, no way. You had to learn to draw. Because those drawings from photographs, they're static, they're lacking in depth, those frozen smiles. Copying a photograph is a lot easier than drawing from life. The photograph does the transformation from a three-dimensional object to a two-dimensional. So much is selected out for you. The composition, the values, the flatness on the page, nothing moves. It's easy. Transferring information from a one flat surface to another flat surface and that's what you're doing but where's the life anyway no matter how long it's been i still feel defensive about using photographs which i have now started to do so this year i decided to paint my memoir when my mother died some years ago she was 107 years old and i got boxes of photographs from her files, which was her closet, <laughs> I, I looked through them from time to time, and except for the pictures of my immediate family in my childhood, there were a lot of people I didn't recognize. My kids weren't interested, so slowly I started to throw them away. I was waiting for lightning to strike me, or some long-gone <laughs> relative to cast a spell on me. Oh, <laughs> but there were some black and white snapshots taken at different times through my long-ago life. There were also a lot of letters that I wrote to my parents that took me back to what life had been for me then and how naively candid I was with my parents. My mother was a teacher, and she'd send me back my letters with a list of spelling corrections. And and she missed completely what I was saying and how funny and my life was hard. I had four little kids, a wood stove, no money, and I was trying to paint. So I decided to make paintings from some of the snapshots. The first one is of me, and it's barefoot. I'm barefoot in front of our little house in Bolinas, California. I'm holding my two-year-old son Hill's hand. My new baby, Jane, was sleeping inside, and I tried to make it both beautiful and also depressing at the same time. It's all about the feeling of that time, and I'm still working on it. But the next pictures I've done, I've done are from random times, me in San Francisco, pregnant, having coffee before I was going to work as a rapper at a department store, or having breakfast the last minutes before going to work as a switchboard operator at a hospital. I know I didn't have a babysitter, although I occasionally worked as one, but did I just leave Hill alone in his crib when I went to work? This is scary. I also did a painting from a photo of myself reading the paper the day after Kennedy was shot. These paintings are so revealing to me about who I was then and how my life used to be. Of course, to make the photographs into paintings, everything has to change, black and white into color, skewed camera angles into strong compositions, adding and subtracting things. So when I was thinking about writing a memoir, I read a book by Mary Carr, and her first imperative was that if you really write a memoir, you have to be prepared to bleed. Well, I'd have enough of that, so no (laughs) writing. But painting is actually very similar. Breathing a past life into these pictures has me consumed with different days when I was little, 
my fourth birthday party, I'm standing on a chair cutting the cake. There are no balloons, no magicians, just my brother and two other little kids at this big table, which is almost empty except for the pink cake. I love doing this. But here's the question. I grew up thinking about using photo that using photographs was cheating. Why is it considered cheating? Even now I have a hard time. And I make myself when I make myself say I'm using photographs, they do make some things easier. I can get a likeness. I don't have to invent things that I can't remember. And painting these pictures awakens my memory of it's almost 80 years ago. There's a lot of it. I'm doing a painting now. I'm remembering a Sunday evening with my brother Jonathan and my cousin Jonathan. And we're visiting an old aunt sitting in front of a TV waiting for someone to turn it on. Now, I have to try to get over my own defensiveness about this. Well, Sheila, thanks for that nostalgia. Uh, well, I use the camera a lot at university also. Uh, the man, I had a man, uh, manual Minolta camera. It was really a great camera. But I never used it in developing a painting or a drawing. And t But today is quite different. The camera is used extensively by artists as a tool and to create a resource to develop one work. In fact, there are lessons in painting courses where I teach where it revolves around the camera in developing the drawing and painting. Sheila, you mentioned that you took a photo of the subject before you developed it into the painting. When did you begin using the camera, or do you use any other technology with it, like Photoshop, to help you alter the image to suit your creative needs? Well, when I was doing pastels out in the street, I'd always take a picture to remind me of details, and also the direction of the shadows, which change constantly. But photographs were always so different from the drawings. The perspective was different, the proportions. Remembering details was really what they were good for, but they did make me feel secure. I felt like I had something to go back to, and even that made me defensive. No, I don't use photographs. I felt that I needed to separate myself from who I considered the lesser artist who couldn't do what I could do or to show the questioner why my way is the more enlightened way. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, that's ridiculous. And artists can do whatever they want and whatever they need to get what they want. That is the bottom line. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show here on WOWDLP Tacoma Park. We're talking today about the use of photography in painting. I need to mention a few things of why the camera and the use of the photograph can be problematic in art, especially for a beginner when they use the camera and use the photograph as a photo reference for painting. When I was a student, many professors stressed by, that using a photo was not a clever idea, and here's some of the reasons. Well, number one, you're creating a three-dimensional illusion on a two-dimensional surface. And the photograph is two-dimensional. And by nature, that's a flat picture. So to make the illusion dimensional, you have to take an extra hard look and make changes to push the dimensionality of the illusion, especially if you know, you're going to work this way. So sometimes you have to kind of change the contrast to make it a little more dimensional. And this would certainly be important for a, a realist or a quasi-realist artist. And Sheila mentioned it. It's two going from two dimensions to two dimensions when you want your illusions go from two dimension to three dimension. Number yeah. two is often in taking a photograph, one is not in control of the light source. And that and the kind of light illuminating your subject. That you know, different kinds of light sources have different kinds of effects of color. And, and this could definitely surely affect your illusion. And, you know, and if, if you got several references going on at the same time of the same photo, you have to kind of work between them because uh, the subtlety or the not-so-subtle kinds of light and light direction will affect your illusion. Next, uh, number three, a great disadvantage is that a lot of times there's a color shift in the photo. Uh, not only on the cell phone, but if you print it on a printer, the printer will have a, will have a definite 
color shift depending on it could be how your inks are in the printer you know maybe they're not balanced and so you got you got to work on that and be careful with that in, in a reference it could make or break your photo with the color and especially uh, sometimes when there's a, a really strong lighting and things could get washed out or things could appear too dark and and lastly uh, you know there are ways of getting around nowadays of manipulating a photo there's so many computer programs that are that are out there that could give you a, de a desired effect and there's a catch with this you're spending so much time creating the photo for the reference that you know you kind of kill the spontaneity and the intuitive nature of the act of painting and that sometimes i think could kill it it's like you're becoming a photographer with all these wonderful programs and it takes away from the action of the paint because they're two totally different processes so you become a slave to the photo and not to the paint and uh how about that? Any more ideas, Sheila? With oh, this? you got it. That's really true. Um, so I completely agree that there are many ways in which photographs in Photoshop can be a valuable tool. But when you're drawing from life, your whole self is involved. This is what I want to say. Your eyes, your body, the feeling for the model, the line, the weight, the grace. It's all about a feeling that the artist has and merging it between the artist and what they're drawing. So illustration is a different matter because with illustration, your purpose is different. To show something, ideas made visual so they can be shown and understood. There are some wonderful illustrators who do both. The, they have the means to tell a story and the formal knowledge to bring it into the world of feeling, which is fine art. There is book illustration can be also its own fine art. Think about William Blake or Rockwell Kent or Norman Rockwell or Chris von Allsberg. They're all wonderful artists. You know, I was thinking of the Wyeths also in this. You know, I wonder if, you know, they yeah. use the photo too. Ah. I mean, it's curious. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, something tells me, especially Jamie Wyeth and uh, Andrew Wyeth might have used the photo That's as well. That's very interesting. have to look that Because their work up. is illustrative in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, drawing from life is a different story. It's not about accuracy, but it's about the merging of the artist to the model. I still draw from a live model, and I'm working for that connection. And when you're drawing from a still life, your eyes wander around through and behind the objects, and you make connections, and you discover relationships and rhythms, and you're always reselecting the angle. What do you want in the drawing? So... In a photograph, all of this, the color, the relationships, are selected for you. And before computers, most people's reason for taking up art seriously was because they have a facility for drawing and they love doing it. Really learning to draw, which most people can do with good instruction, is power. It's in my recent life... I was really appalled when I was teaching adults who had laptops and how much resistance they had to learn to draw when they could get quicker results from copying an image from the computer. And drawing from the model in a Zoom class, which a lot of people do now, even though what you're looking at, you're looking at the light from the computer and you really can't get the same light from paint or pastels or whatever you're using. So you have to learn to make colors approximate light. And when your eyes are in focus for the light of the computer screen, you can't do that because your eyes are focused for the light in the computer screen. If, if I, as an artist, am held back by a lack of skill that's limiting for what I want to say, I will learn what I need to learn. But I think my computer skills don't really have much to do with my art. You know, and, and listening to you, Sheila, you know, I think what, what you're also addressing is the sensuality of the process that in painting. It. You know, and that's, yes. and drawing from a live model, even setting up a still life and your eyes going through those relationships between the objects in the still life. It, there's a sensuality to that that it's in front of you. Uh, and yet, you know, when you do it from a photograph, 
that that immediacy or that intimacy is not there. And I think that's really, really important for a lot of artists that they have that intimacy and immediacy. That's really that's really right. So so like another thing is the photograph, as we've talked about, also has issues with depth illusion. Photographs tend to flatten things and the depth of field of your image might not create the deep space your photo has. So that has a lot to do with, um, you know, the camera and how you use the camera. And also, especially if you're a landscape painter, that could have a real issue with, with because photographs tend to flatten space than, than they are in real life. And to create the, uh, that depth illusion, you're going to have to know how to use paints. You're going to have to know how to use col the cool color relationships versus the warm color relationships in, in, the, in a field of, of a landscape and how an artist does that. Well, I do think that if you've developed real drawing skill, you could put the principles to work that you've learned from drawing into drawing from photographs, like to create depth, the contrast of value. The closer things are to you, the greater the contrast, the greater the detail, the larger the image. This happens in photographs too, but the distortion of the camera needs attention so that creating depth isn't the automatic transferring of information from the original photograph to the page. And the camera lens changes the perspective. It's so terrific to look at Cezanne's paintings and the photographs of the same subject. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good oh, example of that. Wow. Yeah, well, something I do need to mention here, which is important, and I see this happening with my students. Uh, <clears throat> it's technically against the law that's the copyright law, I think, of 1974, to use someone else's photograph and use it in your painting. And uh, yes, you're using it as a reference, but technically it's not legal, and it's just plain wrong on an ethical basis. And uh, of course, I, I'm sure most people, especially students, aren't familiar with the copyright law, but it can get you in trouble if someone finds out uh, and he, they could see their image in your own artwork. And it's very hard to prove, but it's not a good idea. But I've had several students just blatantly rip off somebody's photo that they found on the Internet and just put it in a painting. And, and that's dangerous. It's not creative enough. Yeah, it happened to a good friend of mine who got caught between the interpretation of copyright laws. And uh, fortunately, the person who had taken the photograph was asked him to take his painting out of the show. But he didn't penalize him in any way. But, you know, he was mad. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, this is the Artist Experience radio program. And I'm Tom Snackis with my co-host Sheila Blake and Peter Blake. And today we're talking about the use of photographs as reference in drawing and painting. We are discussing the advantages and disadvantages uh, uh, and also uh, of both. And, the, and we're also talking about well-known artists that have used them. Well, Sheila, you know, we've talked about the camera obscura and the camera lucid several times on this program. And, I, you know, I don't want to steal your thunder because I know that you know a lot about this and much more than I. But I wanted to mention it in a historical framework here. The camera obscura, which means dark chamber in Latin, is one of the early concepts for the camera. And it basically was a, a, a box in a dark room with a small hole or a lens on one side, and then you project it onto the wall uh, the, on the opposite table, uh, the image. Well, when it was just a hole in the box, it was like kind of the beginning of a pinhole camera. And uh, I was reading about this, and this blew my mind, that the Chinese, the uh, Arab and Egyptian, Egyptian astronomers and mathematicians, as well as the ancient Greeks and philosophers, were working on that same concept. Like this whole concept before the camera obscura, so it was like everybody was kind of onto it. Uh, that's kind of an interesting thing how different cultures were were onto the same kind of device. And by the second half of the 1500s, it was used by artists as an aid in drawing and painting. So using the camera-like thing is not that original. 
I mean, it helped an artist trace an image of a different scale and size with great precision and perspective. Artists like Leonardo da Vinci, who was fascinated by the physiology of the eye and the relationship of the eye to the brain, had a lot of fun playing with this camera obscura. And he was known to use it in several different ways. And then, of course, we have the Dutch master, uh, Johannes Vermeer, and he gave special attention to it as well. So it's, very, it's widely speculated that this camera obscura was you know, used quite extensively. And then, of course, it was later revived in, with uh, Hockney and the Falco thesis and other things. You know, I suspect that most of our listeners, when they hear the terms camera obscura, camera lucida, get that little anxious feeling inside that they should know what these are, but don't really. Really, they're very simple. You explained it very well, Tom, uh, very real. Uh, but I can just imagine the astonishment when people centuries ago first experienced the camera obscura. In order to work, where an image of an object or a face is projected into a dark room, as you said. Uh, all it takes is a simple lens, a magnifying glass. It's set in the wall. Outside, the object or face of your sitter is in the bright sun. And on the other side of the lens, the image appears on a surface placed at just the right distance in the dark room. It's that simple. Uh, the image is faint. That's why you need a dark room, and it's upside down. But it's exact, it's precise and detailed. It, it would have seemed like a miracle in those old days. Uh, and, of course, this is the principle of the modern camera, where a photographic film is exposed by that projected image. Uh, that's where the camera got its name. Now, the camera lucida, uh, lucida means light, totally different optical device, specifically designed as a drawing aid, a method to transfer an image onto a paper or canvas. It requires a lot of practice. So with the camera lucida, the artist and the subject are both in the light, and by keeping your eye in one constant position, looking through the eyepiece, you can see superimposed at the same time both the object you're looking at, and the pencil tip on the paper, both at the same time. There's a mirror involved. So you move the pencil tip along the contour of the sitter's face. You're tracing the image, and the result on the paper will be a drawing of the sitter. Voila! Wow. Sounds great. Hey. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. You know, and it, it, before... Uh, uh, photography was mated to the microscope. That was there was a version of that that was used at a microscope. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, the artist David Hockney, after he saw a lot of pencil portraits by Dominique Angra, each he saw that each was the same size, the same certainty of line, and he tried to figure out how did Angra draw so confidently without any mistakes ever. And so he tried to replicate what might have been Angra's methods. So he set up a camera lucida. And over a year, this is David Hockney, he made hundreds of drawings of anyone he could get to sit for him. They're uniformly accurate. They're good likenesses, but they're so lacking in what we might say is the artistry, the connection of the artist and the model. He proved some points with these, that accuracy and consistency can be achieved with optical devices, but the feeling is in the artist. So in 2001, Hockney, in collaboration with the optical scientist Charles Falco, wrote a book called Secret Knowledge. I've mentioned this before. His premise was that artists have used optical devices since as early as the 1430s, when there was a distinct shift to incredibly naturalistic portraiture. And artists, then as now, were secretive about their methods, especially in the Renaissance. When Hockney's book came out, the Washington Post art critic Blake Gopnik published a two-page spread that was scathing about the book. So I wrote to him, and he wrote me back. 
Basically, he said that he was a Renaissance scholar, that his background is in optics and perspective, and that he wasn't able to publish the pages and pages and pages of his notes outlining all the problems with the Falco-Hockney argument. So in the end, he said, I know optics well. I know Renaissance art well. If you'll take it on my authority, I can guarantee you that Hopney and Falco have no legs to stand on. Wow. I have the letter. Oh, right. Uh, Publish it. Yeah, well, that's what I'm doing now. (laughs) In Hockney and Falco's research, they explore the work of the artists from 1150 to 1890. They use depictions of a lute because it's a very complicated object with all those curves, and it's very hard to draw perfectly in perspective. So in Masaccio, there's a painting from 1426. The figure is kind of naively conceived. It's expressive, but it's not naturalistic. But the lute is in perfect detail and perfect perspective. So Masaccio may have used newly developed linear perspective to draw the lute, but linear perspective wouldn't allow for certain things like the drawing, drawing the shine, say on embossed armor, or a complicated patterns on wood or folded fabric, or the most realistic hands or faces. So it's really not certain how Masaccio achieved this accuracy in the lute. But Albrecht Dürer was a master draftsman, and he left a woodcut of a device that allows the draftsman to accurately draw a foreshortened lute, which raises the question about Caravaggio. Could he have used this drawing machine, or could he have used a camera lucida? Because Caravaggio did never leave drawings behind. Well, soon after the Secret Knowledge book, a biography was published of the great Italian painter Caravaggio, and it's called A Life Sacred and Profane by Andrew Graham Dixon. Caravaggio's father and grandfather died in the plague in the 1570s, and he trained as an artist in Milan in the studio of Titian. He was a brawler and a street fighter, and there was next to nothing of records of his life and he was constantly on the run. So the only thing left to research were Italian criminal records, and he died at age 38. Maybe he died from poisoning, but it's been theorized that he was hunted down and killed as retribution for a gangster murder. So when I heard the interview with the author of this book, which all this information comes from, I phoned I phoned in the radio station. I was shaking in my boots, but it was important for me to ask him if it was known if Caravaggio had used optical devices to make his paintings. And the author said, oh no, that a man of Caravaggio's character would never have cheated. <laughs> <laughs> That's the word he used. Yeah, that response just shows how much the use of optics is considered cheating. By most people, I mean, Caravaggio may or may not have used optics, but saying that he wouldn't stoop to cheating is not a very convincing argument. I just, you know, I think, and I remember, in the list of his possessions after he died was a large powered, that is, focusing mirror that can produce the same image as a lens. Hey, Peter, that's good. I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that either. Wow. Well, one of the... Um, provocative arguments that Hockney makes for his thesis uh, is his presentation of portraits before and after about 1420 to 1430. The change towards photographic realism is sudden and extreme. However, it would be very difficult to use a camera obscura to bring a portrait to completion. How could you paint over the image? upside down, in the dark, when your paint would take the place of the white surface, and there suddenly the the color is all changed. Uh, But it's possible the instrument was used in some way, some limited way, in preparation. Now, some of our listeners might be familiar with a really interesting documentary movie a few years back, Tim's Vermeer. In this movie, Tim, a real person, an engineer who made a fortune, decides 
to use a camera obscura to paint a Vermeer. So it's going to be a reconstruction of a painting that's in the Buckingham Palace, owned by the Queen. Uh, so he constructs a set in a warehouse with a, a window admitting the uh, room light. So uh, the set copies the room that's in the Vermeer's painting, a window, a piano. He hires models who wear the clothes. He sets himself inside the camera obscura, and an image very similar to the Queen's painting appears on the blank canvas. Now, because he's a genius engineer, he develops a truly brilliant method for matching the color. Um, I won't explain the technique. You can see the movie or read about it, but it was just so clever. Anyway, he spent a year painting full-time, and the result was impressive. It was a very accurate and subtly modulated picture of the scene outside the camera. But it would not be mistaken for Vermeer. In the movie, they were very careful, showing you not much of the painting. And they certainly never showed it side by side with the real one. I spoke later with Charles Falco uh, when he visited uh, where I worked. He, he's a professor of optics at Arizona. Uh, he and Hockney viewed it, and he said it was lifeless. Wow, that's interesting. Oh, wow. Uh, that's pretty amazing. All that time, and it's still lifeless. We are going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with my co-host Tom Sinakis and with my husband Peter Blake. Today we're talking about the use of photography as reference in painting and in drawing. When Edgar Degas was given a camera, he went sort of nuts with it for about five years. Cameras had been around since the early 19th century, and photographers tried hard to simulate paintings. The light, the composition, the clothes, the romanticism. They wanted their photographs to look like paintings. But for painters, it became a tool, and the camera gave Degas new aesthetic possibilities. He fooled around with the viewpoint. He made high horizon lines, lots of floor. He focused in and out depending on the distance from the viewer. And Degas worked interchangeably across media. So it's so interesting that rather than touting photography as a discovery, artists hid the evidence. There are some photographs left, and Degas was a superb draftsman, so he didn't need photographs to draw. The expressive qualities in a drawing can't be copied from a photograph. In fact, when Hockney was doing his research on using the camera lucida, he did many drawings, and they are at best competent illustrations. There's really no life in them. As early as 1853, Gaspard Félix Tournachon who is known by the pseudonym of Nadar, was a French photographer, characteristic journalist, novelist, balloonist, and he was a proponent of air flight. In 1858, he became the first person to take aerial photographs, and importantly, and this is our connection here, he was a very good friend of Degas. And Nadar was known among many artists as a source of photographic knowledge, and the artists worked with him in the photographic business of the portrait. In other words, the, the, the painters would send the models to get photographed, and they would also have the pictures of the models, and they would work on the paintings. And the use of the camera for Degas was instrumental as their perspectives in, in, in a lot of the paintings were odd. And this is something I wanted to mention. At the same time, uh, Degas and many other looking at, at Asian art, and the perspectives in Asian art are also different. So they had like a double whammy, the photograph and this new Asian art they were looking at. 
You know, you could do, maybe it was experimentation, you know, like you can experiment with, with odd angles very quickly with a camera, maybe. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. They took advantage of that. And for instance, in Degas' work, a lot of times we see the heads of ballet dancers from an odd angle. And, um, well, we don't really see that too often, so you'd have to have a very big memory, a good memory to capture that, so the camera would have helped there. And, and even though uh, Degas was a great memory painter and draftsman, capturing, capturing thing, those kind of things from memory is a real task, and we rarely see people at angles and the way he painted them. Mm-hmm. And also from the distances, a lot of times there's very strained lanes. We had talked about that on a previous show on these, these ballet floors. Um, and But then I have to mention George Eastman here. And, of course, he's the American that revolutionized the camera and made it really ava- available to the masses by the end of the 19th century. And, of course, that's Kodak and where you can almost take an instant camera. And that just blew, blew the world w- wide open to the, for the artists. Well, and P- Pierre Bonnard, who... I probably couldn't have a show with it, talking about Ponard. He <laughs> took up amateur photography in the beginning of the 1890s, so he was a little bit late, and he followed the lead of Degas and Toulouse-Lautrec and Edward Munch, another, you know, the scream, yeah. that painting, and then that harsh perspective in the screen, in the scream, comes from a photograph. Oh, I had no Isn't idea. Isn't that interesting? So by that time, the techniques of photography had become so simplified that it was accessible to practically everyone. Degas was still using a tripod and glass negatives, but Barnard had a small Kodak, and his photographs were very like his paintings. They compressed space, he recorded patterns of light and shadow, and the intimate details of his daily life. The artist, André Lote, described him as a celestial reporter. I love that. Mm. Bonard himself said that the most important thing is to remember what most impressed you and to note it down as quickly as possible. Well, what a better way to do that than with a Kodak. In 1984, the photographs of Bonard were published, and they were quite a surprise. There were these small black and white pictures, and they're so interesting in the way that they're so like his paintings. They're patterns of dark and light, his sister and brother-in-law's unposed children playing, Marta, always her face is in shadow, nude looking like so like herself in the bathroom, and Pierre himself, nude in the shadows under the trees. Some of these images appear in his paintings and it is the same artist the same selection of his surroundings but also how much he painted what he saw there's invention there's imagination for sure but his material was right there in front of him wow that's interesting well i was reading a little about van gogh and paul gauguin and they actually had played with the camera uh, early in their careers, but there were strong resistors to the invention at first. And it is known that Van Gogh despised the camera for portraits or especially portraits of him. He didn't like when people put the camera on him. He was in front of the camera. We do have some photographs of, of Van Gogh in front of the camera, but he never used them in developing his own paintings and especially his self-portraits, which he did at, earlier in his career, and his career was only, what, five five or seven years, so he didn't have a long career, but he certainly didn't use them in his self-portraits because they were totally done from life. You know, a young artist like, like Van Gogh, I mean, he could hardly eat. And he couldn't even afford to hire a model, so he would use himself as a model in his development of his portraiture. And it's a good lesson to try the self-portrait in drawing and painting from life, and I, I certainly recommend it. Kayabot, it was 14 years younger than Degas, and he was very rich. He was a generous guy, and he helped his less fortunate artist friends. He supported them sometimes, and... Kayabot came into work after Impressionism. He was intent on becoming part of the modern industrial world. And you may 
think about during Impressionism, there was this kind of unspoken idea that it was important to romanticize the beauty of the untouched landscape. So you really never see anything like cars or evidence of industry, even though things were rapidly changing. So some of the contributions that were made in France at the Industrial Revolution were the invention of the balloon, paper-making machines, the steamboat, the semaphore telegraph, gas illumination, the silk loom, the threshing machine, and the fountain pen, and even the common graphite pencil. And Kayabot wanted to ex- accentuate the changes He used dramatic, exaggerated perspective for maximum effect of buildings and bridges. He can be compared to Thomas Eakins, the great American port artist. They both dealt with the stifling atmosphere of bourgeois existence, and they wanted to break out of that. So Kayabot used the illusion of deep space to give a distance, a sense of isolation. In fact, Kayabot and Eakins both used cameras, and they both studied under French academicians, and both were going forward to the future of industry and also going back in time to a naturalism. So Kayabot's work had everything to do with near and far and the distortion that the camera makes. The distortion sometimes works, And sometimes it doesn't because the perspective the camera gets is disconcerting at best. And sometimes the figures can just be too weird. You know, yeah, you used to point that out to me when we would see his paintings. But I think you have to look closely uh, to see that distortion. I think the first glance is very favorable. um, But you always look closely, and and then you point out to me that that second person lying on the couch behind the sitter is way too small. And I look, and yeah, I I have to agree. Uh, I would love to have seen some of these original photographs for the session to see where that distortion came from. Yeah, well, there's a wonderful book by Kurt Varnado that he he researched Kayabot's use of photographs in his paintings, which Kayabot was it was research. It wasn't trying he wasn't trying to hide it. Uh yeah, no, that that's great. I mean that would be interesting to put the photograph studies next to the paintings. Mm-hmm. Well, Chuck Close, who we talked about a lot on this program, was a painter, printmaker and a photographer as well. I like to kind of some sometimes sandwich in between pop and photorealism. And I think he gleans from both movements. And Chuck Close died about seven months ago uh, in 2021. His early works were large-scale portraits based on photographs. His photorealist portraits were, were also deemed something called hyperrealism. This is a great word, but it's sometimes hard to comprehend. Hyperrealism is a work of art that is more real than real in capturing the true essence of an illusion right down to every exact detail. It's extremely hard to do without a photograph, and you have to be a really good draftsperson or painter to capture it with paint. Uh, and Close suggests that he had a visual condition known as prosopoagnosia, which is he physiologically could not recognize faces, so he used the camera and the photograph to inspire these works. And in 1970, the Polaroid to create an instant photograph in a 20 by 24 instant film, which is much larger than the standard film size, so he could make these large size portraits. And this was no ordinary held camera. It was huge, and Chuck Close described it about the size of a Volkswagen. (laughs) And artists and Close's contemporaries, like Lucas Samaras, were using the Polaroid camera in their work, but it's the scale of these large prints that that Close adopted in these portraits. The camera was very hard to use, it was very technically involved, and the materials were also hard to obtain. But one of the first artists to use this kind of Polaroid was Andy Warhol, and um, but Chuck Close took it to, to a new level with these series of portraits, especially of the Hollywood portraits of celebrities. 
Well, on the use of these uh, porches and cameras, Chuck Close said, and I quote, he's not stealing anyone's image. After every shot, the picture goes up on the wall. I could look at it, and the sitter can look at it. And they say, oh, okay, this is what we're doing, end quote. So it was a laborious process and a relationship with the sitter. And, um, you know, the, revolt, the, the results could be instantaneous, but, you know, probably not when you're dealing with the sitter's opinion as well as the artist's. Uh, for the final uh, photo reference. So it was a process to get to the painting later on. Um, And there's a raw honesty in these photos as the sitters were photographed as they just showed up and they were not embellished or any way. They didn't have makeup on or anything like that. They didn't comb their hair. And certainly those photos, uh, those paintings used by photographs look it. Well, this... (laughs) The success of photorealism in the 1960s and 70s was surely based on the photography of hyperrealism and superrealism. And when I was a student indoctrinated on using the photograph as reference, of not using the photograph as reference, I used to say to myself, uh, why bother? You know, why bother painting a photograph so much, uh, a painting so much like a photograph? And because I found them very cold and lifeless and much like Van Gogh, who said the same thing when he uh, had to deal with photographs. But admittedly, these photorealist artists were the rage, although I couldn't stomach them. Artists like uh, Richard Estes, Ralph Going, Dennis Peterson and Audrey Flack and Chuck Close were part of this movement. They all used photographs. They were painting from photographs. Uh, and their paintings look like photograph, which I still find a little odd. Well, Audrey Flack's work, she was the first photorealist painter whose work that got purchased by the Museum of Modern Art. Her work often depicts details and close imagery of still-life subjects. I have to say, of all of them, I kind of like to work. There's a kind of kitschiness to it and uh, anally retentive work in the painting for sure I, you know I think the appeal of photorealism is that it's uncanny the paintings are often large and they look like photographs but when you encounter one you can clearly see it's a painting now you might say so what and I, I can't answer that I can't explain it but I get a strange feeling, and so I think that's the appeal. There's a mystery, as there is for all real art, something uncanny. Um, just like in the last program, we quoted Joseph Conrad, the mysterious, almost miraculous power of producing striking effects by means impossible of detection. And that's the last word of high art. Well, in my research about photorealism, I found a photograph on the Audrey Flack website, and it was titled Photorealists of the 1970s. This photograph includes Audrey Flack and a host of many photorealist artists. Also included in the paint in the photograph is a painter, a young and brilliant artist named Stephen Fock, and he was a young and aspiring artist out of Richmond, Virginia. He was a student and assistant of Grace Harding at the Maryland Institute of College of Art, probably around 1997. And I got to know Stephen Fox very well as a graduate student at the same time, but I was a year later than him. And this is a quiet gentleman, and he's a powerful painter, and he makes incredibly photorealist works. He was extremely knowledgeable of photography, and the camera has aided Stephen Fox to produce incredibly mysterious and dramatic paintings, which are all landscapes of a variety of beautiful subjects and night scenes and some with social commentary. His illusions are engaging and well-painted. His ascent in the art world is real, like his art. He is so skilled at the use of paint, and the photographs are a tool that he uses. It is important here to mention that one can have all the photos in front of them as much as they want, but if you don't know how to use the photograph, and use it well, it's an entirely different story. And Stephen Fox uses them both very well. I've learned a lot from Stephen Fox and watching him paint. And we were in the same graduate program, and I occasionally would pop into his studio, and it was almost like a temple, uh, because when he worked, he was so intense about it. 
And, you know, I would say like, wow, I was observing the practice of painting and the science of painting, just speaking into peeking into a studio. And there's something to be said, and Sheila, I know I've talked about this with you before. It's about the intensity and the serious of purpose in the paint. So you can have photographs, but he still is intensely focused on the paint. Uh, he moved on to New York City, and he continues to paint today. And it's really also nice to see a, a, a great guy with great integrity and purpose to make something beautiful and good. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, well, I'm going to go back a little bit after the Renaissance and after Impressionism and postmodern work and pure abstraction and pop art and God knows what came photorealism. The wonderful photorealist painters took dynamic photographs of ordinary places like diners, signs, donut shops, gas stations, and they perfectly copied them from moment to moment. And that deliberately brings up the question of cameras. It's bringing that up front and center. That's what they're talking about. What is the difference between a photograph and a painting of a photograph, even if it's done perfectly? The photographs themselves are taken with the intent of making strong dynamic compositions. Lots of shine on metal, glass, mirrors, sometimes people, sometimes the absence of people. It is something that's fundamental to painting and that they did it. They, the question, how do they do that? which is one of the great surprises of art, comes into play here. Like, you look at it and you say, oh, they just copied a photograph. And then, you, yeah, but how did they? So the fact that the artist covered every single part of that with the same intention to get it right, especially with the color transforming a photograph into paint, the result of photorealism is that first, the photo was taken exactly as you see the painting, so you know that the artist didn't interpret anything. I once had the pleasure, a great pleasure, of introducing the wonderful photorealist painter Ralph Goings to our Dunkin' Donuts in North Carolina, where he photographed all that pinkness. And a review of that painting, which he completed, said, Donut Shop with its super slick form, form, formica counter, shiny vinyl seats, and gleaming plate glass windows, which still reveal another fast food chain across the parking lot, is a study in gloss, and it conveys a dazzling synthetic purity. Goings is, is drawn to his subject not because it is beautiful, but because it is terrifically beautiful to paint. That is the greatest thing that we all have to keep in mind. But underlying this is an unstated and unconscious desire to confront this coexistence of beauty and banality. And the fact that the artist painted makes it come alive. The possibility of imperfection, the intensity of the artist's concentration, which, Tom, as you were just talking about with Stephen Fox, the terrific ordinariness of what it is, and it makes us see what wasn't seen because the artist did just that, and that's what becomes missing in all the digital work we're seeing now because it's not how did they do that, but, oh, they can do anything, and so what? Right. Well, the use of the camera by artists from days gone by right up to today is a relationship, a kind of a symbiotic legacy. Artists promoted technology to help them create more easily and more efficiently. The camera is simply a tool, and the artists have used this tool, like so many other kinds of tools, to improve their process in creating images. Artists are simply making illusions that can fool the eye. Viewers of art enjoy these illusions no matter what the process is. Most people in viewing art are not really interested in the process. They're really interested in the product. The technologies of today, more than ever, with digital images, 
are used as tools, but not only by artists. And I think it's important to say that doctors use them, scientists use them, the criminal justice systems use them, and government itself. The camera was one of the first inventions to revolutionize the development of an image for image makers. For artists developing their craft, the camera and its photo products should have been used wisely and creatively for beauty's sake. And that's nothing wrong with that. For beginners, though, there is a learning curve. And we must learn how to read a photographic image to help them with their art. And you noticed I said the word read. It's about visual literacy. And a lot of times beginners don't have that visual literacy to use the photograph. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the show. Sheila, what about this next show in May? Are we going to talk about Gregory Gillespie soon? Uh, and he used photographs in his work as well, right? He certainly did, although that was not talked about during his lifetime. But he did, and it's pretty obvious. But our next show, we're going to do a portrait of Gregory Gillespie, who happened to have been an old friend of mine. He was in art school with me, and he and his wife had babies when we did. So he stayed in touch through the years, and he became a very well-known American painter. His portraits were beyond realism. They were meticulous depictions of every pore and hair. He did a lot of self-portraits. They went way beyond realism. And later, the fickle styles of the art world buried him. Uh his drawings, his paintings were in all the major museums across the country, including the Hirshhorn and the uh, the uh, Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, and the San Diego Museum of Contemporary Art. And only once in the Smithsonian Museum in one of their portrait shows recently I saw a drawing by Gregory but uh, his work really did get buried and so you don't see it displayed the the fickle style of art just changes so uh, but his widow Gregory's widow has commissioned a filmmaker to make make a documentary of his life and the filmmaker is coming to film us me and Tom in time for our next show. So we'll be talking about Gregory's life and hopefully it will be a contribution to the film. And yes, Gregory used photographs and with amazing results. Okay, well, stay tuned to our next exciting program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 on your FM dial. You can join us by streaming us live at TacomaRadio.org. Check out our great website, and if you get a chance and you want to contribute to community radio, click the Donate button. We appreciate your support, and without our listeners like you, we would not be so popular here and across the globe. There's so much fantastic music, talk shows, interviews, and community news from so many diverse people at the radio station. Please go online and see the programming. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Take another picture with your click, 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 click camera.